There are many things that I love about the local church, um, but one of them is that when you sit down to worship somewhere on a Sunday morning, you really never know who you might be sitting next to. God calls together in one place people who mix on Sunday mornings who sometimes might not ever get a chance to interact. And so in my own experience, I've looked out into a congregation and seen sitting next to each other the greeter from the local Walmart uh, sitting next to the head of a big law firm. I've seen a a stay-at-home mom who was kind of a local celebrity for being the mother of quintuplets. (laughs) sitting next to someone who was once a little bit of a celebrity for embezzling millions of dollars from his company. Plenty of times I've looked out and seen very liberal Democrats unknowingly sitting right next to very conservative Republicans. Uh, The only reason I even knew it is I had the unfortunate privilege of being friends with both of them on Facebook and seeing what they shared every week. I once served at a day of mission cleaning up a local park with a team of faithful church members and had shared tools all day with a man that I just called Rob. I was headed home when someone mentioned how cool it was that Rob had joined us to serve that day. I thought, cool. Why? Well, they said, Rob's our state representative. To me, he was just the guy who sang off key in the front row in the 830 service. The church, like nowhere else, brings together people from all walks of life and throws them into one worshiping community, and I love that. I love how the hierarchy acknowledged in the rest of the world is so often ignored among the people of God. And then sometimes it's not. Of course, we we are all tempted at times to get caught up in our own rank and authority and status. A small-town pastor that I knew was heading down one of the long rural roads in his town when he looked in the rearview mirror and saw the lights of a police car pulling him over. He had just enough time while he was waiting for that officer to approach his window to get himself really indignant that this was happening to him. I mean, wasn't he a faithful servant of God? Hadn't he sacrificed so much for this very community? And what were they doing picking on him when they should be out catching actual criminals? By the time he rolled down his window, he was really worked up. And so before that officer could even muster a greeting, the pastor asked him angrily, Do you know who I am? Not getting a response, he asked it again louder. Do you know who I am? At which point, the officer took off his shades, looked at him and said, yes, preacher, my wife sings in the choir right behind you, and then proceeded to write him a ticket for the speeding that he deserved. His status did not win the day. And to his credit, my friend, the pastor, is the one who I heard tell that story on himself years later, very sheepishly, realizing how silly it must have sounded for him to try to pull rank that day during a traffic stop. Pulling rank is something that happens often in 2 Kings chapter 5, in a biblical account of power and humility that we're going to look at together today. If anyone had the authority to pull rank, it was Naaman. 
Uh, General Naaman is introduced to us by all of the trappings of rank and authority as the commander of the Aramean army. He outranked just about everyone there besides the king. And even the adjectives that 2 Kings uses to introduce him are over the top. Here are these first two verses from that chapter 5. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master. Because the Lord had given victory to Aram, he was a mighty warrior. I mean, those first sentences go out of their way to paint a picture of a wildly powerful and successful man. We can all but see the medals shining on his uniform there. Except that we keep reading and we can see one more thing. He was a mighty warrior, the passage continues, but but he had leprosy. All those adjectives, all those accolades building him up, and it takes only one word to bring him down, leprosy. And all of his power, all of his achievements, all of his connections were unlikely to help him do anything about that. Disease is too often the great equalizer. If you spend any time in an oncologist's waiting room, you know that chronic illness is no respecter of persons. And when given that diagnosis of leprosy, Naaman must have whispered to himself, no, not anything but that. Please let it be something else. Leprosy was a disfiguring, debilitating, painful, and isolating disease. Those who had once scrambled to get close to him for his status would now scramble to get away from him when they saw him coming. Instead of staring at his uniform and the medals as people once had, people would stare in pity at his diseased skin. I'm sure he tried everything. Within the reach of his power and his wealth, he tried everything to buy a cure, but there was no cure under his authority, except under his own roof. Under his own roof, where he would have never have thought to look, was a person who had exactly the information that he needed. And, and if Naaman's introduction does everything it can to highlight his high and mighty status, hers does everything it can to highlight her subservience in every way. Here's from verse 2 of chapter 5. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. This girl is a slave. She's a, a captive. She was taken when Naaman himself raided her poor, weak little country of Israel. And the weakness of her people is only highlighted by the fact that she's never even given the status of a name in this story. She was simply part of the spoils of war, a servant, a foreigner, a woman, and young at that. She didn't even serve Naaman himself. She served under his wife. And while the adjectives used to describe him say things like great and high and mighty, her adjectives are words like young modified by the word little. I mean, this is sort of overkill. There's redundancy in the words here. It can't do enough to demean her in her introduction. She's described as a little, little 
person. We don't even have record that she said anything to Naaman. She probably wasn't allowed to speak to him, but she simply spoke through her mistress, her concern, and the knowledge that she knew where healing could come from. So even though her voice was powerless in that place, she knew the seat of power. She knew the God of Israel who had worked power, and she remembered a prophet back in Israel with the gift of healing from the Lord, a prophet named Elisha. And this is the sign of just how desperate Naaman had to be. He was willing to take medical advice from a slave. He was willing to travel back to a country that he had already beaten once and ask for help. But still, in the true fashion of those who believe that power can cure all first, he had his king send a letter to their king to let them know, Naaman is coming, make a big deal out of it, to demand that healing be delivered to him as if it were some artifact in the royal treasury you could just hand over. Israel's king was despondent, worried that this was a trap, that when he couldn't deliver, that he would be attacked again. He, he knew that healing, of all things, was way above his pay grade. But then the prophet Elisha heard about it. He, he sent word to the king. He ordered the king, basically, to have Naaman sent to him when he arrived. And arrive, Naaman does, in all of his power and glory with horses and chariots and a fitting entourage for a man of his status. And when he cries halt to that entourage at the door of Elisha's humble abode to demand the healing for which he has come, for which his king has sent an order in advance that he is to receive there is a very anticlimactic response. Elisha doesn't even bother to answer the door. Now he's home. There's no question about that, but instead of showing the proper fear and respect for this man's status, he just sends out a messenger with a very strange prescription. Just, just go wash in the Jordan several times and you'll be fine. You'll be healed then. Now, from what you know so far about Naaman, the high, the mighty, how do you think that he feels about the prophet not even answering the door for him? It makes his blood boil. How dare Elisha not even answer the door? How dare he give me, gives me orders? I am the one who gives orders, not takes them. How dare he send me to such an ugly and lowly river as the Jordan? We have better rivers than that back home. I could have stayed home and just gotten this over with there. And this is not the grand healing that I was hoping for. Naaman is very specific about what he had pictured in his mind that would befit a man of his status. He says, I thought... I thought he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and he would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. That's the way I had planned for this to work. How dare you defy my expectations? Do you know who I am? Naaman storms off. I mean, he's intending to leave the whole prescription unfilled when he is stopped en route, curiously enough, by his servants. His servants. 
who, who have enough compassion and wisdom and common sense to stop the man and, and say, don't just leave this in the dust of your pride. They address him so respectfully, so humbly, Father, they say, Father, they address him. If the prophet had given you something very difficult, would you not have done it? I mean, how much more then when all he said was wash and be clean? How easy is that? So begrudgingly, Naaman finally does it. For once he follows orders when he's so used to giving them to other people, he goes down to the muddy Jordan to dip himself not once, not twice, but seven excruciatingly humbling times. And once he does, he is healed. He's transformed. The passage says that his skin now becomes like that of a little child. In fact, the same language used to describe his renewed skin is the language that was used to describe the little, little servant in his household. This great man, through the intercession of a little girl, is made new like a little child. And although she's not named again here, in fact, how would we name her when we have no name? She is definitely given a nod. The words that were used to introduce her are the words now put on this mighty man. She was right. Her witness was central, her words instrumental in his healing, even though she wasn't present to witness it. And in the story somehow of a military leader, a fiery prophet, and two heads of state, it's the servant girl who is the evangelist who points the way to healing and wholeness. We never even catch her name. The good news comes through a servant. One of the people I used to look out in a congregation and see on Sunday mornings, sitting sometimes by the Walmart greeter, sometimes by the retired CEO, was a man I just knew as Dr. Jim. I knew he was a retired physician, but I didn't really know much else about him. Learning people's stories can surprise you, especially when you've known them for quite some time. Dr. Jim had been a well-known anesthesiologist at an award-winning hospital at the peak of his career. He was known for being gifted in what he did in the operating room, but he was also known for being brash and arrogant, for being rude and condescending and sometimes even cruel to those that he worked with. He thrived on wealth and status and ignored those who didn't fit into those categories. And one of those he ignored was an operating room assistant, a cleaning lady, really, the woman whose job it was to clean up the operating room after surgery. If he had the most powerful job in that OR, Hers had to be the least. It is definitely not a desirable job to be the one who sweeps and mops up after surgeries. This woman's name was Mary, and she felt a sense from God one day that she should begin praying for this arrogant and brash doctor who treated her with contempt when he even bothered to acknowledge her at all. God kept putting a burden on her heart to pray for him, specifically for him, and God would not let her off the hook. He wanted her to keep praying. 
Why, she asked God, why him? Why do I have to pray for him of all people? The answer, she says, she heard clearly was, because he's the worst one. She never told him that she was praying. She never witnessed to him out loud with her words anyway. She never told him this story until years later when they crossed paths again and she heard that he had become a Christian. He had met a scrub nurse named Kathleen who was a believer. They had gotten married and it was through the light of her faith in Christ that Dr. Jim was drawn to the Lord. When his wife Kathleen started wanting to go on short-term medical mission trips to Guatemala, Jim again was resistant. Why would we leave our country to go help those people? It was dangerous there at the time. He didn't want her going unprotected. He didn't want her going alone. And so finally she convinced him to just go with her. So he finally went. 